please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament. Once again, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15, verses 40 through 47, the end of that chapter. Again, God's Word, Mark 15, beginning in verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, And Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead, and when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid it in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. As for the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Let us pray. So what's the point of a funeral? Now, this may seem like an obvious question, but funerals do seem to be a little less common nowadays as more and more people choose to forego them for whatever their reasons. And yet, traditionally, the reasons for a funeral are manifold. Practically, they deal with the corpse, respectfully, at funeral honors, and remembers the deceased. They are a thank you to God for the life of the one who died. Therapeutically, funerals allow survivors to grieve, to process the loss, and to come together as family and friends. Funerals are good for the soul. Thus, what makes a proper funeral? Well, there's no one answer to this, as cultures throughout history have handled internments vastly different. Even Christian funerals have changed greatly over the centuries. Yet there is one thing that is necessary at a funeral, which is to be present. No matter the traditions, your presence or absence says volumes. Thus, as Jesus makes, makes it to his own gravesite service, it's all important who shows up. So the Son of God is dead. The King is dead. Under the full judgment of God for all our sins, Jesus was crushed. With a perfect and loving willingness, Jesus freed his last breath for an eternal redemption. And with the last tidbit of life gone from his body, the darkness of the day of the Lord quickly dissipates from the land. The sun returns as if after a storm, and with the improved visibility, we notice some other spectators of the cross. So far, the foot traffic passing our Lord has been pretty heavy. There's been bystanders, priests, scribes, soldiers, and other assorted, unidentified folk. But now, further off, Mark shows us a group of women. 
Now, there have been plenty of women passing by on the road, but this is a huddled mass of ladies closely watching the whole excruciating crucifixion several stone throws away. They have sketched a mental slideshow of every torturous moment. But who are these highly observant gentlewomen? Well, Mark names three of them. First up is Mary Magdalene, which is her first appearance in the gospel. Now, Mark assumes that his audience is equated with Mary Magdalene. Thus, we know from the other gospels that Mary is from a town called Magdala, which was about three miles south of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee. Mary also had seven demons that Jesus cast out of her. And, of course, Magdalene has a role in the upcoming events. But other than this, we know nothing more about her. Next, there's a second Mary, who's the mother of James the Younger and Joseph. And by these two sons, Mark refers us back to chapter 6, when Jesus and his disciples were in Nazareth. There, the locals pointed out that Jesus' mother was Mary, and his brothers were James and Joseph. Yes, this Mary is the mother of Jesus. She's the mother of the crucified one. She just watched her firstborn be beaten, scorned, and bled to death. There is nothing timid about this mom. Her love will not be separated from her boy, even in the darkest times. Finally, Mark names Salome, who only shows up here in Mark, so we know nothing about her. Yet in Matthew's list of women at the cross, he mentions, along with the two Marys, the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Now, we cannot confirm for sure, but Salome might be Mrs. Zebedee. Either way, the three ladies are are just a few among many more. Mark doesn't give us a number. Maybe there's a dozen to match the 12 apostles. Either way, what stands out about these women is not their names or lack thereof, but it's how they're described. While Jesus was ministering in Galilee, they followed him. This means they are disciples. They are committed believers who traveled with Jesus. The women were part of Jesus' troop. They were roadies in the most pious sense of the term. Additionally, Mark says they ministered or served Jesus. Now, this most likely included meal prep and all the other basic chores of the days. That means that the women were the back of the house to Jesus and the apostles being in the front of the house. More so, though, this ministering to Jesus is also what the angels did for our Lord when he was tempted those 40 days in the desert. The angels and these women alone minister to Jesus in Mark's gospel. Furthermore, Jesus said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for sinners. And it's the same word for serve and minister. This means the women served the suffering servant. They ministered to the ministering shepherd. This is a high commendation from Mark. 
These women were not up front. They didn't preach or do perform miracles, but their service was angelic. They are the last who became the first. Moreover, they are present at our Lord's final moments. All the brave apostles have fled. Peter and the others swore oaths, oaths that they would never leave Jesus, that they would even die with him. Yet their brags fell flat. But the ladies showed up. In the Old Testament, there is a motif that when men fail, then due to their shame, women stand up and get it done. Tamar did it for Judah, Zipporah for Moses, Deborah for Barak, Jael for Heber, and Abigail for Nabal and David. And so these ladies do it for the apostles. Their courageous love for Jesus is a beacon on this dark afternoon. More, more, most often, the Lord does not ask of us great and marvelous deeds, but he does expect us to show up. And the women showed up. But with return of the sun, now it is hasting to the horizon. Sunset is drawing the drawing to a close this day of preparation for the Sabbath. This means Passover fell on a Friday, and the next day was a high Sabbath. This, though, poses a few problems, one legal and another practical. The legal issue deals with Deuteronomy 21, where the Lord commands that those who are hung on a tree need to be buried before nighttime. A corpse exposed overnight was a curse to God and would defile the land if not put in the ground. Thus, to fulfill the law, even being dead, Jesus' body requires entombment. Complicating this, however, though, is a practical issue. The body of Jesus still belongs to Rome. It has to be released before the body can be buried. And as you know, it can be quite slow trying to get the government to sign a release form. And yet, even with Jesus being dead, providence never misses a detail. And so, in walks Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Arimathea is actually Samuel's hometown. It's about 20 miles or so from Jerusalem. But Joseph has an exceptional resume. For one, he is a noble, which means he is a wealthy landowner, high class in status, and character. Next, he's a member of the council, which most likely refers to the Jerusalem High Council, the Sanhedrin, that just condemned Jesus to death in a flurry of hatred. This seems like a huge strike against Joseph. Now, Luke does tell us that Joseph did not vote with the rest of the Sanhedrin. He silently protested the injustice. Yet Mark makes this same point by saying Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. From the very opening of his ministry, Jesus announced the coming of the kingdom. He talked about coming anew into his kingdom in the resurrection. Thus, waiting for the kingdom is explicit faith in Jesus as the Christ. 
Joseph may or may not have been connected with the other disciples, but he was a believer. Therefore, his privileged nobility gave Joseph access, but it was his faith that moved him to do the right thing. There is one last male disciple who is still man enough to act with devotion towards their dead Lord. And as the text says, it did take courage. Joseph faced the danger and he went and asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. But why is this so risky? Well, Rome had several ways of dealing with crucified criminals. One was to leave the body exposed until it was eaten by birds. This was the curse and shame of non-burial, a punishment considered far worse than death. Secondly, Rome also at times would grant the body to family members so the family could give the person a decent burial. And since Jews were so strict on, on burying, this was a favor to the Jews that was most often extended by Rome. Therefore, during a feast, before a Sabbath, the normal expected practice for Rome, what would be to let Jesus be buried? Yet there's one more wrinkle. When the crime was treason, which was basically what Jesus was charged with, Rome was stricter. They didn't want that rebel to be made a martyr. And so they would often leave that rebel exposed or get rid of the body some other way. Hence, this is the danger for Joseph. If he's pegged a follower, he might get roughed up, and he definitely would not get the body. On top of this, there's the priest. If they caught a disciple bearing the body, you could bet they would not be very friendly. Thus, Joseph has the perfect disguise. As a council member, he wears the uniform of the priest. He appears to be a law-keeping Jew. But by his believing heart, he can honor Jesus with a burial. Yes, providence does not miss a beat. Yet when he does make the request, Pilate again marvels. He's amazed that Jesus is already dead. Just under six hours on the cross is a speedy death to Pilate, and so he does a double check. He summons the centurion and gets confirmation that Jesus is for sure not alive. The very same centurion who watched Jesus expire and testified to the fact that he was the Son of God, he again bears witness to Pilate to the death of our Savior. Now Mark leaves out the details about the spear jab to the side. Nevertheless, this is a double affirmation that Jesus truly died. There's no mistake, no pretending, no coma going on. Death and all its scary finality afflicted Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Thus Pilate signs the release form. With convenient efficiency, Rome grants the corpse to Joseph, and he is on the clock. He needs to get Jesus buried before it gets dark. So he buys a linen sheet, gets Jesus off the tree, wraps him up, and lays him in a nearby tomb. This is a jiffy lube mummification, done in 15 minutes or your money back. Now Mark doesn't mention any spices or oils applied to Jesus. No expensive upgrades were applied to him. 
Rather, this is a simple and basic entombment. Poor in life, excuse me, poor in death is Jesus. And laid in the grave, Jesus, or Joseph now rolls, excuse me, now rolls the heavy rock over the tomb. Yes, the door of death has been shut and locked. And when death's door is closed, it typically is never opened again. Indeed, with this, Jesus endures the final shame of God's judgment for us. Now, on one hand, Jesus' atoning work is dead. With his death, the redemption is finished. Sin paid for and wrath appeased. On this very day, Jesus' soul rejoined the Father in paradise. And yet the shame of death extends to burial. It includes the unnatural separation of soul from body. The body returning to the earth from which it was first taken. Sure, Jesus' body did not decay, but to be laid in a stone tomb is to be under the power of death for a time. Furthermore, under Moses, the grave and the corpse were major impurities. To touch the dead body, to enter a grave, defiled you and prevented you from the holy temple until you were purified. The grave was diametrically opposed to the holy realms of God. Thus, our Lord's body in the impure tomb testifies to him sharing in the full curse, shame, and defilement of death. Moreover, a buried body expresses the mortality of our flesh. It showcases the need for a better body. We are a body and soul unity. Our bodies are an essential part of who we are. And yet, as you know, our bodies are kind of like old cars. This knee grinds and that joint squeaks. We have bond over here and rust over there. This screw is loose and that bolt is missing. Getting up in the morning is like starting up an old beater on a cold morning. If we are going to live forever, we need a new model. And so Jesus' mortal body left in the grave is him preparing to put on a new immortal body. The shame of the grave is also a cocoon wherein the earthly puts on the heavenly. This is why scripture consistently confesses both the death and burial of our Savior. Jesus' entombment is also a necessary part of his saving work for us. And yet Joseph, laying Jesus into rest, this is also Jesus' funeral. And as you know, it is fitting that the honor of a funeral should match your prestige in life. Distinguished nobles and famous celebrities are given long processions, grand eulogies, and truckloads of flowers. While poor farmer, he's laid to rest in his field, with family and a few neighbors. Well, Jesus' measure of faith in, of fame in life, crowds followed him around for the signs and miracles he did, the people flocked to him. More so, the, as the centurion just confessed, he is the son of God. 
God in the flesh walked on this good green earth. Surely he deserves a grand funeral. The top rabbi should do his eulogy. People should form a long queue to see his body. But there's none of this. At the end of the day, there is only one thing needed at a funeral, which is to show up. Just be present to honor the dead. And yet no one showed. The caterer flaked. The florist was MIA. None of the guests RSVP'd. Peter said he would die with Jesus, but he can't even come to his funeral. One lone man is present, Joseph. Did he say a quick word over Jesus? Well, if he did, Mark didn't include it. One man at a funeral hardly counts as one. As Isaiah 53 foretells, the suffering servant's grave was set among the wicked. A bare funeral is, is, is the treatment due a criminal. The Son of God died and was buried, and no one really took notice. Not the world, not his friends, and not his family. Such is the humiliation of our Lord for us. However, even though Joseph alone was there, others were watching on. The women were still on the lookout, at least the two Marys were. They didn't attend the funeral, but they were spectating from afar. Particularly, they took note of where the body of Jesus was laid. They marked which tomb was Jesus and which one were not. Yet what is the value of this observation? What does this express about the women? Well, as we will see, the ladies record the location to return with spices. They can't come back tomorrow, for it's the Sabbath, but the day after, the women will come back to treat the body of Jesus with the respect it deserves. Every good mom wants their son's body properly honored in death. And no internment is complete without oil, spices, and other fine gifts. This means that the women look on to Jesus with love, but not really in faith. Hope and expectation that Jesus would be raised is not evidenced in the women, nor is it really even seen in Joseph. We find a noble love in the women and in Joseph, but faith in the resurrection is undetectable. The Lord predicted his death numerous times to his disciples, and each time he included mention of his resurrection. The Son of Man will die, but in three days he will be raised. But this part of his teaching seems to be completely forgotten. Resurrection is kind of important, quite amazing. You would think that they would remember And yet, in the aftermath of the horrific cross and the permanency of death, faith in the resurrection has evaporated. Jesus breaking out of that sealed grave, no one gave it a thought. And such is the weakness of our faith in the face of death. Before the pain of death, 
whether that of loved ones or facing our own, it's easy for our faith in the resurrection to stumble. We cannot, we can find ourselves grieving and worrying like those who do not have hope. Yet our Lord's true and complete burial is assurance for your faith and hope that he overcame. Jesus didn't beat a bad disease. He wasn't resuscitated after some grievous injury. He didn't beat cancer or some horrible tumor. No, Jesus died and was buried. His corpse was wrapped in in a cloth and shut in six feet under. But by his righteousness, Jesus was victorious over all the finality of death. The tomb is empty. Christ vanquished death completely and forever. And if Jesus defeated death for himself, how much more can he do it for you and your believing loved ones? Indeed, as the firstborn of the dead, as the author of resurrected life, Jesus is with you in life and in death. As Paul says, if we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Christ died and lived again so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. In life and in death, then you belong to Christ, body and soul. Yes, in death, our soul goes to be with the Lord and our bodies lay in the dirt. But Christ watches over both of them. In heaven, Christ glorifies your soul, and in the ground, he readies our bodies for resurrection. Because he endured death and burial, so Christ is with you, especially through death. Even if no one ever shows up to your funeral, Christ is there. Thus, in the face of death, may your faith never waver. May the reality of Christ's death and resurrection strengthen your faith in him and in his unlimited power. Also, the funeral of Christ is for your comfort. Yes, funerals are hard. They are a time of sorrow and grief. But you belong to one who understands. He experienced the sadness of the grave to encourage you and to cheer you up with the joy of the resurrection. Therefore, praise the Lord. All glory be to Jesus Christ, who died and was buried for us and resurrected for us, so that we might live with him forever and exalt his name, the highest name, in heaven and earth and below the earth. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray.